Tonight, halfway through the book, I think there are 48 chapters in the book of Ezekiel. Remember, uh, chapters 1 through 24, God's addressing uh, Judah, Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. Oftentimes, he uses just the general term for Israel, so the people of God, the household of faith, even though the most of them were bereft of faith. And then from chapter 25 on, we'll see God will begin to denounce the surrounding um, nations, the Gentiles. Ezekiel 24, verse 1, hear God's holy word. The word of the Lord came to me in the ninth year, the tenth month, on the tenth of the month, saying, Son of man, write the name of this the day, the very day, the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Speak a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, put on the pot, put it on and also pour water in it, put in it the pieces, every good piece, the thigh and the shoulder, fill it with choice bones, take the choices of the flock, pile wood under the pot, make it boil vigorously and seethe its bones in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot in which there is no rust, and whose rust has not gone out of it, in which there is rust, and this rust has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece, without making a choice, for her blood is in her midst. She placed it on a bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust. Thus it may cause wrath to come up and take vengeance. I put her blood on the bare rock, that it may be not covered. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city. I will also make the great, the pile great, heap on the wood, kindle the fire, boil the flesh well, mix the spices, let the bones be burned, set it empty on its coals, that it may be hot, its bronze may glow, and its filthiness may be melted in it, its rust consumed. She's wearied me with toil, yet her great rust has not gone from her, that her rust be in the fire. In your filth, in your filthiness is lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, yet you are not clean. You will not be cleansed from your filthiness again until I have spent my wrath upon you. I, the Lord, have spoken. It is coming. I will act. I will not relent. I will not pity. And I will not be sorry according to your ways and according to your deeds. I will judge you, declares the Lord God. Verse 15. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I am about to take away from you the desire of your eyes with a blow. You shall not mourn, you shall not weep, and your tears shall not come. Groan silently, make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban, put your shoes on your feet, do not cover your mustache, do not eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, in the evening my wife died. In the morning I did as I was commanded. The people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things that you are doing mean for us? Then I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am about to profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul. And your sons and your daughters, whom you have left behind, will fall by the sword. You will do as I have done. You will not cover your mustache. You will not eat the bread of men. Your turbans will be on your head, your shoes on your feet. You will not mourn. You will not weep. But you will rot away in your iniquities, and you will groan to one another. Thus Ezekiel will be assigned to you according to all that he has done and will do. When it comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. As for you, son of man, will it not be on that day when I take from them their stronghold, the joy of their pride, the desire of their eyes, and their heart's delight, their sons and their daughters, that on that day he who escapes will come to you with information for your ears, 
On that day your mouth will be open to him who has escaped, and you will speak and be mute no longer. Thus you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, we love you. We love you because you first loved us and died for us while we had enemies, Jesus Christ. We thank you for all of your word, even the words that we have here. Pray that you would provide tender mercy to me, Almighty God, to handle such a weighty passage in all of us the requisite faith, submission to your word that we would receive and we would tremble at words like this and we would find our only hope in life and death in Christ and we would flee from sin remembering that you are holy yesterday, holy today, and holy forever and you call us to be a holy people. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The main teaching of the, the chapter is, I would argue, fairly evident. God's been promising Jerusalem slash hyphen uh, Judah for 24 chapters, essentially, that Judgment Day is coming. This is a picture of Judgment Day. Perhaps I'll conclude by reading from our confession, chapter 33, uh, the section on the judgment of Almighty God on the last day. This is a picture of God finally bringing to pass the judgment that he promises uh, upon his people for their sins. So Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The Babylon is laying siege to, to the holy city. And it, we, we learn so many things. One of the basic things is he's, first he speaks to his people and then he speaks to the Gentiles. One of the things that we see when we find judgment, God will say wrath here. We've said this many, many times before. God only has wrath on unbelievers. There's no wrath for the believer. Romans 8.1, one of my favorite passages. For the true believer, no condemnation, no wrath, no damnation. Christ took that. But for the false professor in the church, the hypocrite, for the Judas in the church, uh, for, um, for, for the tear inside of the church, for the goat inside of the church, a true unbeliever, they receive wrath. And so we find that external religious privilege having the oracles of God, the ordinances of God, the word of God, the sacraments of God, the priesthood, all of the typological things of Christ, um, Christ's gospel and type and shadow, having all of those privileges over and against the Gentile people, it doesn't keep one from experiencing the judgment of God if one dies in one sin. So God is bringing judgment upon his people, and he's bringing judgment upon his people because they have no true faith, there's no true covering for their sin. And so God sees his people in their sin, the unbelievers among his people. And so behind God's denunciation of sin, his judgment of sin, is the holiness of God. I probably prayed it a few times in the prayer. God hates sin with an infinite hatred because he's infinitely holy. We don't think like that, even true believers. We have a hard, hard time with that. The, the, we, we, I, I prefer to look at the love of God, the, the tender, tenderness of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God. Those things, those, those warmer things. Um, but I would argue it's a holy love, a holy tenderness, a holy kindness, that kind of thing. But we forget that God is holy. He's spotlessly pure. And because he's spotlessly morally pure, he hates sin in a way that we can't even imagine it. We, the best we can understand God's hatred of sin is looking at the cross. When Christ cries out, the beloved Son, my God, my God, why hast thou, Father, forsaken me, the Son, because he's become a curse? So Christ is, has taken our judgment day. 
And if Christ does not take our judgment day for, for us, we will take our judgment day, which is what this is uh, um, speaking of, because God is so holy. And so to, to be able to really wrap our minds, this is true. I, I do understand there are lots of professing Christians that say, you know what, this is the part of the Bible I don't believe. It's a, a bad idea to not believe any parts of the Bible. I agree there are parts of the Bible that are very frightening, and this has, happens to be one of them, but it is not a good practice to disbelieve things because they're hard. And so God has told his people, this is what's coming, judgment day is coming. And the people of God don't believe the prophets. And in, in, even in the New Testament, the second epistle to Peter, even Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says what people are saying. Oh, oh yeah, sure, judgment day, yeah, judgment day is coming. And so professing people of God are mocking God's man and in fact mocking God saying we don't think judgment day is coming and God's been promising for 24 24 chapters judgment day is coming repent of your sins turn to me and live Ezekiel 18 love that chapter why will you die turn to me and live let go of your sin embrace me and live but the people of God are, 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 are stubborn the unbelieving and God tells us tells Ezekiel to speak to his people in parables there's, there's one parable here, verses 1 through 14. So the chapter breaks out very nicely. It's all one theme, judgment's coming. But it breaks out very nicely. There's a parable in 1 through 14, which is the parable of the cooking pot. We're going to talk about this in just a bit, the boiling pot. And then 15 to the end of the chapter, to me, is gut-wrenching. So Ezekiel is told a number of places to preach. A, couple, the, the, a number of the Old Testament sermon, uh, prophets do this, by the way. They're told to preach sermons orally, which is how you preach a sermon, uh, with words, and then actually to act out a sermon. So there are sermons that, that, that are, remember before Ezekiel's told to make clay figurines. It's a picture of the siege of Jerusalem. He's told to cry, climb through a, a, a hole in the wall of his house, put all of his stuff on his back. He's a picture of a, a captive going into captivity. Isaiah is told to preach naked for a couple of years. Isaiah the prophet preaches without any clothes for a couple of years. It's a picture of you're going into captivity. Your, your, your enslavers are going to take away your, your clothes, and they're taking you into captivity. God required his ministers to preach these kind of sermons. I would argue this is the age of the church's infancy. So God often, we do this with our children. We speak with picture books. So this is words preaching, but also picture books. And so he's going to be using Ezekiel and the death of Ezekiel's wife as a tangible sermon of how sad going into captivity, excuse me, judgment uh, in Jerusalem will be for the people of God. So two parts, both speaking to some aspect of judgment upon the people of God for their sin, the unbelieving among the visible people of God. Parables, this is a parable. I think the Sunday school, what is the Kitty Sunday school definition of a parable? It's actually pretty good. Um, earthly stories with a spiritual meaning or something like that. Am I close with that? that? That's a very good definition of a parable. And that's what's going on here. And God uses parabolic language, symbolic language, using figures, metaphors, that kind of... So one word will be used symbolically to stand for another thing. And... Um, we are sheep. Jesus is the shepherd. Metaphorical language. And uh, the Bible here in the book of Ezekiel has used metaphorical language throughout, throughout the, the book. In the past couple of chapters that we've looked at, the, the last sermon, what was it? Ezekiel 23. 
In that sermon, God speaks to his people with another parable, and he actually repeats another parable that he did in, in Ezekiel 16. God uses figurative language there to say to his, to, to his people, he calls his people his wife. God is married to his, his people. And God says to them, you are an unclean adulteress. And he does that in Ezekiel 16, and then he repeats himself in Ezekiel 23, symbolic language. And their adultery, which is sexual immorality or uncleanness, is, is a symbol, and it stands for their spiritual uncleanness, that they're idolaters. They're bowing down to sticks and stones. They're bowing down to other gods. And so God says, you're an adulteress, but they're idolaters. They are sexually immoral, but mainly the, the notion is, you are spiritually unclean. You're spiritually immoral. And so their adultery stands for their idolatry. And something that we learn, in addition to God's symbolic language that he does here, the cooking pot, when, this is, this is common when, just earthly speaking, when, when we repeat ourselves, sometimes we do so because either our audience is not listening or we want to make a, we want to, we want to make emphasis. And God's word is, is the same. When God repeats himself once, twice, three, four, four, ten times, we literally should take out our pen and paper and say, oh, God wants me to, to sit up and listen to this. God repeats himself throughout the book. And even with the figures of the uncleanness, he says in chapter 16, you're an unclean wife. He says in, in chapter 23, you're an unclean wife. This is the true truth of it. So, and then we come here, God does the exact same thing. If you, again, if you've been paying attention to Ezekiel, he says, listen, judgment day is coming and, and it's going to be like a boiling, a cooking pot and you're going to be meat in the pot. Well, he's already said this to the people back in Ezekiel chapter 18. The whole, I find the whole Bible like this, but certainly from Genesis 3, 1 through 8 on, it's just, why will you die? Repent, turn to me and live. The, the entire Bible from 3, Genesis 3, 1 through 8 to the end of the Bible is literally turn to me and live. Hear God's warnings. Hear God's threats. The wages of sin is death. Turn to God's Redeemer and live. The whole Bible, our whole life from beginning to end, is one long constant, turn to me and live. Let go of your sin. Embrace my sin uh, bearer. So from chapter 11, judgment day is coming. It's going to be like a cooking pot. You're not going to escape. You're going to be meat in the pot. And now here we come to the very last prophecy being given to uh, Jerusalem in this section chapter 24 and he says the same thing remember parabolic language and then repetition so when you find this this we could say this is true truth God is underlining and this is this is the truth of judgment I don't want to be known as a hell fire preacher I don't feel like I'm a hell fire preacher you may feel that I am I don't want to be known as a hell fire preacher I want to preach what the Bible says and whatever the text says, I want to say it. And I want to say it in such a way that bring God, brings God glory and that I could benefit you as, as, a, as your servant. So this is judgment. It's, it's, I don't, it is not possible for a minister who's faithful to the Bible. It is not possible. I challenge you. What can you do with this passage? How can you turn judgment, judgment day, cooking pot, it's coming. How can you turn this into your best life now. There, there, there are two words when you when you go to prepare a passage. Exegesis, ex 
out of, eisegesis into. For a person to come to, to, to first of all, they're not going to do it. But if you came to, to Ezekiel 24 and you made this sound like your best life now, that's eisegesis. You are pouring something out that's not in the text into the text. That's a sin. The minister is supposed to exegete. He's supposed to pull out from the text, explain, apply. That's the minister's job. And God is the one that has written this. But he, he, he says again and again, you're the pot. You're the pot. Judgment day is coming. And it's right at the door. The siege is now going to begin. The people of God don't believe him. I would say the people of God, the professing people of God, t- today, if we were to go around to, to churches, any church, take a church, and we were just to ask people, Christians, professing Christians, do you really think that there will be a real judgment day. Everyone that's really found in Jesus with born in spirit-wrought faith, they'll be on the right and they're going to hear come. And do you really think that all those who are found apart from Christ, no faith in Jesus, all the millions and millions of people with no faith, that they'll really be on the left and that they're going to hear depart and that the majority of the visible church really doesn't have faith and they're going to be shown because of their sinful lifestyle to be in the goat side and that they'll really hear, depart from you, work of everything. Do you really believe that? Real judgment by real judge, like this, what would you hear? I guarantee you, you would hear no. I, I don't believe that. I believe in 1 John chapter 4, 1 through 10. God is, God is love. So do I. God is love. He sent Christ for this. It's either he receives this or we receive this. So we, we can't, God's not a, a wax nose. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can't make up the God of our own understanding. This isn't AA. It's Christ's church. So symbolism of Jerusalem's destruction, figure of languages for spiritual truth. He moves from the adulterous wife because she's idolatrous. And now he says you're a murderous people and murderers will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's repeated this so many times throughout these 24 chapters. He said Jerusalem is a bloody city. This Jerusalem means city of peace. I mentioned it this morning. Christians should be lamb-like. We should be dove-like. We should not be people of blood. And he says over and over again, it's a bloody city. You're a bloody people. You're murderers. And you think, what do you mean we're murderers? They're murderers. And so he uses the figure of a cooking pot or a boiling uh, pot. And then this is, if you, if you know the history surrounding the Babylonian captivity. The people of God are taken away in three successive waves, I think under the king Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin, and then uh, later uh, there's a wave taken uh, out under King Zedekiah, who is Jehoiakim's uncle, that Nebuchadnezzar changes this fellow's name to Zedekiah. And it's at the final wave with king under King Zedekiah that uh, Nebuchadnezzar finally makes it to Jerusalem to besiege the city. So it's wave one, wave two. Uh, um, uh, Ezekiel is taken in wave two to Babylon. And now he's writing about what happens subsequent wave, wave three after King Zedekiah. Now, now Babylon is at the door of Jerusalem and judgment is, is coming. So the meat in the pot is the people of Jerusalem. It's... it's Again, the closest to me, to my mind, New Testament book that comes here is um, obviously the book of Revelation. 
chapter 14, chapter 19. It's the, the, the wine press of, of God's fury. It, it, it's here. You know the figure of when Christ comes back and brings judgment, and even the unbelievers in the professing household of God will receive judgment. One of the figures that's used in the New Testament is there'll be blood up to the horse's bridle. It's a 2,000, 200, 2,000 stadia. I used to know what a stadia was, but it's like swimming in a pond of blood. That's this. Old Testament figure, New Testament figure. And God says says to the people, you are in the pot and you're going to be ground up and the bones will be boiled. Again, this is, is, is frightening. If this were just merely some, you know, the Germans had like these uh, Hansel and Gretel, but they were actually terrifying. <laughs> the witches are eating. If this was merely Hansel and Gretel from some strange German, we could say, well, this is just some strange German writing scary things to scare children. But it isn't written by a strange German trying to scare children. It's written by a holy God. And is he trying to scare people? Yes, I would argue he is. Um, the greatest motive to embrace Jesus is love. And the second motive, if love doesn't work, is fear. And fear is a legitimate motive to come to Jesus Christ. It's not the greatest motive to come to Jesus Christ, but it is a motive to come to Jesus Christ, to flee from the wrath of God to come. The Bible says it. So there's two ways to present Christ. And it's a, sometimes depending on who you're looking at. If you're talking to a person who is brokenhearted, who is just broken, 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 I would be super gentle with that person. Gentle, gentle, gentle. Mourn with those who mourn. If you have a person who says, you know what? I'm going to sin up. I'm going to sin it up. I don't care what you say. No one can break me. I'm a tough nut. It might be time to amplify um, intensity. I don't mean be ugly or be, be obnoxious. It might be time to say, the wages of sin is death, and all sinners will die. You can talk tough all you want, but you won't talk tough on this day. So sometimes how we minister God's word depends upon the person um, in front of us. This is Ezekiel 24. As we've been said before, the wages of sin is death. We've said why? Because God is a holy God. God has not changed. Uh, God has not changed. The God of the Puritans is this this God. The God of Calvin and Luther is this God. Um, The God of St. Augustine is this God, is our God. And so you say, well, in, in days gone by the people just thought God just was so holy he hated holy and he brought just justice and judgment now we're enlightened in the church and we no longer believe that no no that's not true the church no longer believes it not because the church is enlightened the church no longer believes it because it's apostate there are these people so when someone says I'm more enlightened I believe more in the mercy of God no it no you don't you don't believe in the God of the Bible it's, you're making God after your own image and, and so we can't focus on one aspect of God's being or attributes to the exclusion of the other things that he reveals himself. So it's when people say, I'm just going to worship a God of all love, you're making up your own God. And it's not that we've, we've grown, we've actually declined in our understanding of God. So when we look at our religious forefathers, take the magisterial reformers, take the English Puritans, and they said, yes, this is exactly what's going on, that's exactly what's going on. Um, wages of sin. Um, God repeats it throughout his book. The bloody people. Um, <clears throat> two classes of people in Jerusalem, both the believers and unbelievers. The visible church is wheat and tares, sheep and goats. And only God knows. I know sometimes people think, well, I can, 
I can be the sheep goat, goat detector. No, you can't. And you should give that up. If someone says they're a believer and they don't show you they're an unbeliever by, you know, I, don't, I don't know, by living in habitual gross sin, then you should treat them as a believer. But God alone knows who, who the goats are and who the sheep are. We should be able to know them by their fruits. We're very bad fruit inspectors, beloved. We're very bad fruit inspectors. One of the reasons is because we are a work in progress and their work's in progress. And the other thing is we don't see our own biases. We tend to judge, we cover over the blemishes of people we love, and we tend to magnify the blemishes of people that we don't love. And we're not even honest about the people we love and don't, don't love. And so when we say there's a habitual sin, no, usually it's a person that we don't love and we're just magnifying their, their sin. So within the church, two classes, the people that are receiving the judgment of God here are the unbelievers, the, t- the tares, uh, the goats among the sheep. And then within Jerusalem here at this time, we'll further subdivide it into two classes. One class of people will go off into captivity they're, they're being scattered, as the language is in prior cha- chapters. They're going off to Babylon, three successive waves. They're going to get brought, brought back in three successive waves, but they're going off to slavery. Slavery, slavery, not a pleasant experience. Off to slavery at the hands of a Babylonian. Again, not a pleasant experience. You're getting taken away with a ring in your nose, a hook in your nose. You're going to be naked. They're going to kill your kids. They're going to enslave your kids. Not a pleasant experience, but off you go. And the other people in, uh, in Jerusalem, they're going to be the gathered together. And you would think, you know what? Going off to slavery, you have it harder than the people that get to stay in Jerusalem. If you could pick, if you could pick which group that you belong to, which group would you belong to? The scattered off to be enslaved in Babylon or the gathered who stay together in Jerusalem? Here, which group would you pick? You better pick slavery. Why? God, this is... God's ways are not our ways. We think slavery is the worst. Give me liberty, give me death. What was that guy, Nathan, whatever? Right. Give me liberty, give me death. Get in your house and put your mask on. We don't believe that business. Give me liberty, give me death. God preserves his people in slavery and through slavery. It was actually a mercy of God that God sent them off to slavery. It's the people that get gathered together that remain in Jerusalem. They're the meat in the pot. There's no escape for them. So the people that remain are going to get judgment. They're going to get wrath. God is separating the sheep from the goats, the wheats from the tares. But he does it in such a way that we, we would not do it that way. But God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So just as a personal aside, when we are taken away into Babylonian captivity, and I know everyone thinks that we're in Babylonian captivity, even me, because Peter says, she who is in Babylon greets you. We need to reckon bad as God reckons bad, and we need to reckon good as God reckons good. Not everything that's painful in your life is bad. God may bring pain, bring pain into your life to preserve your life, to preserve the lives of your loved ones. God may be bringing pain, privation, those kind of things in your life to save you and to ultimately you bring you into a place of better freedom. So don't envy the people. Well, they get to stay. Uh, they get to stay because they're going to be meat in the pot. It's not always a bad thing when God brings us to a place of, um, uh, of difficulty. God could be doing something wonderful, even as he would wonderfully bring these people uh, back into the promised land. So, verses 1 and 2, that's what's going on thematically. Verses 1 and 2, we have a time indicator. Nothing in the Bible is arbitrary. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, ninth 
year, 10th month, 10th of the month. And then the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Now the Bible, I'm not going to read it, but the Bible records the exact day that God brings Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is God's servant. He's a, a pagan. He hates God. God calls Cyrus my, my Mashiach, my servant, my anointed one. God, a number of places in the Old Testament, calls Old Testament pagan kings his servants. Again, it has no salvific benefit for them. They don't love God. They hate God. God is going to use the unbelieving king as an instrument of judgment against his unbelieving professing people. Is that legitimate of God to move the hearts of kings like a river? Is it legitimate of God to raise up Pharaoh for the purpose of knocking him down and revealing God's power in him? Is it legitimate of God to do that? Yes. So when we look around and think, oh, I can't believe who the president is. I can't believe our poor country. It's such a mess. I do this. Our poor country is such a mess. Beloved, God is on the throne. God governs all kings, all peoples, all things for his glory and for the benefit of his church. He bring, He raises up Nebuchadnezzar and says, do my will. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is going to bear the guilt of his own sin, but he is the one doing it. He, he brings the siege against, um, against um, uh, Jerusalem. And I, I, I want to point out something. So what do we hear? Ninth year, tenth month, tenth of the month and he he lists the particular day that it it um it occurs and god tells ezekiel to write it where is ezekiel right now at this time he's in exile you know psalm 137 don mclean you can listen to it um we lay down and wept uh, in babylon some and it's i think he takes from psalm 137 maybe one through verses one through three one through four something like that it's, it's very redundant in Don McLean's version. There's a woman from Africa. She has, a, she has another virgin, version. That's uh, a singer in the 70s. He doesn't get to the end of Psalm 70, uh, um, 137 because it's too grotesque. Uh, but, but Ezekiel is one of the men taken away in the second wave of deportees. So he, he's experiencing captivity. Ezekiel himself could say, we, we lay down and wept when we thought of Zion when we were in captivity, when we were enslaved, we remembered Jerusalem, the people and the place uh, 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 that God placed his name. So Ezekiel is a fellow sufferer. And this is one of the reasons why his, he's, his eye is constantly towards Jerusalem, even though that he knows the people of God by and large are apostate and that they deserve what God is going to mete out. He still loves them. He, he's a fellow Jew. He's a fellow sufferer. He still loves them. It's like Jesus. Does Jesus know that the bulk of Jerusalem will not believe in him? Yes. He's God come in the flesh. Well, what, is, what, what does Luke record? What is, what's Christ's cry of lamentation? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I was like a mother chicken. I wanted to gather you like a mother chicken, like a hen, uh, to chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And, 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 and you've missed the time of my visitation, and now judgment's coming. Again, Titus sacking Rome in AD 7 is, is a picture of this, the, the final judgment. And so Ezekiel is a, is a, is a fellow captive. He has his eye towards um, Jerusalem. He's away in Babylonian captivity. I think in chapter 11, I can't remember which, certainly chapter 1, but one place we, we see that he is by the river, you know, speaking to the captives. 
And so here is a man who can sing, we sat down and we, uh, we uh, wept. And um, God preserved Ezekiel, as I say, uh, kept him safe by the means of captivity. He expresses his solidarity with the people of God by his eyes upon them. The thing I wanted us to see is we're nine years, ten, day, ten months, and ten days into captivity. How many more years before the captivity for the Jews is over? How many more years? Almost 60. Remember, God told them through Jeremiah, you're going away into captivity for seven years. They wouldn't keep the, the land Sabbath. They wouldn't let the land lie fallow. So God said, since you did not obey my land Sabbath, I'm going to take you away and I'm going to make you keep the land Sabbath and let the land lie fallow. And then I'm going to bring you back in seven years. So we're almost 10 years in. They've got a little over 60 years to go. But almost 10 years into slavery, captivity, God says now Jerusalem's going to fall. It's going to take two, two years. Remember that third wave of deportees? Uh, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin is taken away. Jehoiachin's uncle is named Mataniah, something like that. Um, Nebuchadnezzar changes uh, Mataniah's name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah tries to overthrow uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar then makes a siege against Jerusalem. That's this. It's going to take two years for him to completely destroy Jerusalem, but it's going to be destroyed. Picture of Judgment Day. And God records to the very day. If you read, I think, in the book of Ze Zechariah, Zechariah or Zephaniah, I forget which one. But this is one of the feasts that the Jews in Babylon, on this particular day, they would make a fa excuse me a fast, not a feast, a fast. They they would they would fast and they would mourn for the day that Jerusalem was besieged by Nebuchadnezzar. So God says, Judgment Day is coming. I mentioned it earlier. The people of God thought the prophets of God were joking. I would argue, even many of the professing believers, professing Christians in today's church. If they heard this sermon, they would think this is a joke. Like, this is a joke. That I would be a joke, that I am a joke, and that telling people Judgment Day is coming in a church is a joke. It's certainly not going to happen. They would not believe that this is going to happen. But I'm going to argue something, beloved. The people that subsequent heard of all of the people being thrown in the pot, the people in, in, in Jerusalem, uh, in Babylon, they didn't think it was a joke. They didn't think it was a joke. We've, we've said this so many times. God teaches us by proposition. God teaches us by example. And, and, and God teaches us by experience and example. Experience can be a good teacher, but experience can be a brutal teacher. It can be a brutal teacher. This is what moms and dads are constantly telling our Christian kids. Son, daughter, wages of sin is death. It's either pain and shame in this life or pain and shame in the next life. And, and we're trying to, and they say, well, how do you know that it's, you, you have pain and shame in this life? How do you know this? Well, because I've lived in, in, in a lot of sin and I've received pain and shame. And I'm trying to keep you from pain and shame. And, and so many times, like the prophets, the parents will plead with our children, our loved one. I'm telling you the truth. And our kids look at us and think, oh, no, you're just being silly. You're just this strange puritanical parent. You're probably a homeschooler. And I, I just don't believe you. And, and, and what has to happen? They have to learn by sad experience. And the problem for Judgment Day, when people learn that there really is a holy God, 
he really does hate sin, and we really should have listened to the call to come to Jesus, they, they will learn. But it's too late. It's too late. Now, in God's kindness, here in this life, even when we learn by painful experience, many, many, many times, it's not too late. It's never too late to come to Christ while we live. Never too late. So it's never too late. If you, you, could be, you could be sinning after sinning after sinning after sinning, pain and shame after pain and shame. If you have breath in your breast, today is the day. Jesus never turns away. So th- this is judgment day. This is when it's too late. But as long as you're alive, it's never too late. And we shouldn't pre-qualify anyone. Look at the most gross sinner. I shaved his face this afternoon. So don't pre-qualify. And if, if you have unbelieving family and friends and think, well, I guess it's just going to be judgment for me. No, 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 no. Why will you die? It's never too late. Now, when Christ comes back, when judgment day begins, then it's too late. And they're going to learn, like the rich man learned when he lived in riches and he, he went off to receive condemnation for sin, and, and then Lazarus uh, went off to, into the bosom of, of, of Abraham, even Christ. So that's how God teaches. And, and when judgment come, day comes, the faithful prophet of God will not be considered a joke. When judgment day comes, the faithful mom and dad, if you tell our kids, wages of sin is death, the free offer of God is eternal life in Christ. And for so many of us, we hear, oh, I think you're making a, making a joke. I don't think so. Judgment day, no one will think it's a joke. But until that day, God does in his infinite judgment, judgment allow people to disbelief. So we have the parable of the destruction. It's very simple. We've mentioned it before. Jerusalem's the pot. The people in Jerusalem are the meat in the pot. It's a horrible figure. And then when he says, take the choice pieces. You see what he, how he says? Take the choice pieces. Take the choice uh, sheep of the, the flock and put them in the pot. These are the high and the mighty. High and mighty people. This is a Psalm 73. You know this. The Bible says that rich, rich people answer. You know how rich people answer? When, you, when, you, when a rich person, hey, we're going to do what we're going to do. I'm going to do what we're going to do because I make what I make. I'm going to sit where I'm going to sit. I want the best stuff and blah, blah, blah. This is how it happens because I make the money. And I make the money and I call the shots. And people dress it up. They don't look as Boston-y as I just presented that. You, you could be as gentle as you want. But when you have dough, you talk to people like you have dough. And you push your weight around because you have weight. Rich and powerful people only have weight with other people. They're only powerful about other people. You know who I am? I could, I could do it. Yes, okay, I know who you are. This is Psalm 73. But the choice pieces, the choice flock, the rich and the powerful of Jerusalem can only push around people. They can't push around God. No one's going to push around God on Judgment Day. People push around other people all day long. People in power push around people without power. That's how it works. It's just, that's the nature of man. They're, it's Gentile-ish. But no one is going to say to God, this is how I do things. I make the dough. I call the shots. You're going to be on the left. You're going to be in the goat line. You're going to be in the tares. And when God says, depart from me, you work of iniquity, you're never going to say to him, I built the Boston Gardens. I'm friends with the mob. You're never going to say that. What are you going to say? Jesus Christ is Lord. And then you're going to hear depart. 
So people can bully people, rich and powerful. People can bully other people that are less rich and powerful. But you can't bully God. No one can prevail with God. That's the whole point. God says to the prophet, go get the rich. Go get the powerful. Go get the choice. And and think of who believes. What kind of people really believe in Jesus? The dregs. Read 1 Corinthians 1, 27-31. The nothings. Are, is most of the church filled up with rich and powerful and wise people? No, they think this is a joke. They think it's an utter joke. It's for goofballs like us. And God says, go find them and put them in the pot. James, What is James? God says he makes the poor rich in faith. And the poor, the, the poor rich, not every rich person is bereft of faith. David was rich. Abraham was rich. And they have rich in faith. But by and large, God says, go get the rich and powerful and put them in the pot. Judgment for the rich and powerful. And they say to us, oh, this is never going to happen. This is for, for, for Christians with no brains. We're rich and powerful. And then God switches. Now he uses Ezekiel, which one of the, my favorite phrases, um, I've studied marriage. I, I love to study marriage. And I have a blog on, um, on, um, on uh, marital union on the website and I like to look at the phrases that God inspires for marriage the wife of your your youth the wife of your covenant the desire of your eyes which this is my favorite one I sometimes refer to my wife by this so what God uses um, for for Ezekiel's wife is what Ezekiel uses for his wife he calls his wife and thinks of his wife as the desire of his eyes the delight of his heart I love that every Every man's wife should be the desire of his eyes and the delight of his heart. Some, every man's wife should be that. And that was Ezekiel. And so Ezekiel is a priest. Remember, he's a priest. He's a prophet. He's married. And he's in captivity. And that means who else is in captivity with him? Having a wife... I, what I, what I, what I told my wife this afternoon, I said, um, what did you, you, you are the crown of my life. Having an excellent wife is to have a crown. I, I, I said, you are the crown. She made me a beautiful dinner, a beautiful lunch, whatever you, we call it. It was beautiful. We had a wonderful Lord's Day. And I, I said, you are my crown. When we think of this idea of um, Ezekiel being married and having a wife that he loved, the desire of his, his eyes, he loved his wife. Marriage next to Christ, I think, uh, a man's love for his wife next to Christ is this is his greatest gift, I think. His greatest gift next to, to, to his salvation is Jesus, is his wife, the closest friend in all the world. And he's the head, she's the body, but he's the head and she's his heart. And that's this fellow. And with that comes such a level of blessing. You could be poor as a church mouse, but if you have a wife that you love, you're rich. With that level of blessing comes also a possibility for the most intense pain. It's the most intense pleasure to have a wife that you love. But because you love her so much, it provides the platform for the most intense human-to-human pain, which is this. He's going to take her. And this is God is doing this. Ezekiel loves God. God loves Ezekiel. Presumably the wife loves God. And presumably God loves the wife. And God says to Ezekiel, I'm going to take your wife. And I'm going to take her 
so I can use your mourning as an example to my people that they're going to mourn like this when I take away the temple. Oh, boy. Ezekiel loves his wife so much. God, if he hates divorce, God loves marriage. God says to his servant, I'm going to take your wife. Oh, beloved. Remember I said this morning our duty is clear. I think our duty is clear. Sometimes our duty is painful. God says, I want you to love and follow me when I give you this wonderful wife. And then God says, I want you to love me and follow me when I take away your wonderful wife. Job did this. God gave. God took my children away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So God has a right over us. And what God is going to use, and this, we, as, as God's servants, we think, well, somehow it's really me running the show. It really isn't. All of our life is a platform. Certainly the preacher. All of the preacher's life is a platform to preach. Hear judgment. God sometimes brings sorrow into our life to teach other people about himself and about what's going on. And if you didn't love God, you would cry foul. And even loving God, it will take your breath away. And God says, I don't want you to mourn. When I take your wife, I don't want you to mourn the way that people regularly mourn. And remember, remember Ezekiel is a priest. He has certain ceremonial strictures about what, who he can make himself unclean for and not unclean for by way of expressing mourning. The priests and even the high priests especially, they couldn't just mourn like regular people and for any old people. They couldn't just go to a funeral of their aunt or their second cousin. They could only make themselves ceremonially unclean in their expression of mourning as priests for certain classes of people in certain ways. But here, God puts these strictures on him, not as a priest, but as a prophet. He says, I want you to mourn without taking off your turban, no sackcloth, no ashes. I don't want you to weep, anything like that. I just want you to groan. Your grief over the loss of your beloved wife is going to so devastate you, you'll only be able to groan. That's a sermon. I can't even believe, I can't, I can't imagine this. Now if God calls us to give up our beloved spouse because God means to teach someone else something by the loss of a beloved, our our duty is to say, speak, Lord, your servant listens, which is what he does. And then God says, like my prophet, who can't even barely groan, he's so overwhelmed with the loss of the desire of his eyes, his wife. I'm going to take away the desire of your eyes. I'm going to take away the temple, and I'm going to take away your children. And when he says, I'm going to take away the temple, they were not using the temple rightly. They were... They were using the temple idolatrously. They were formalists. They were hypocrites. They, they trusted in their external privilege. They said, we have the temple. We can live in our sin. It doesn't matter. We have the temple. We can live in our sin. We have Bibles. It doesn't matter. God says, I'm going to take away the temple. I'm going to take away the lampstand. I'm going to take away your children. And you, you'll be so overwhelmed, you will, you'll just groan. That's a picture of Judgment Day. That's a picture of Judgment Day. And, and, and God kind of 
amplifies and increases his message. Can you, can you picture Ezekiel before these people groaning and then God tells them, tells him, now I want you to teach the people what I'm doing, what the truth is. It would be one thing to have someone talk about Judgment Day flippantly, um, cavalierly. It would be quite another to hear it from the lips of an Ezekiel. It's a sad thing, beloved. There is a Judgment Day. God is holy. God hates sin. God is holy and he is merciful and he loves to save sinners. He loves them. No one will be exempted from this day. Jesus, There's going to be a day. Remember how God says on the ninth year and the tenth month and the tenth day, judgment day began. Someone could conceivably write down, if you could, in the year 2023, on such and so day and such and so week, such and so month, Jesus Christ came back and the dead were raised all men were presented before the judge the books were open those who loved him heard come those who were found apart heard depart and that could be written down on such and so day one of the things our confession says and I'm going to say this and, and be quiet God does not tell us what this day when it will be it will be we're told it will be he doesn't tell us the day for, for, two, for two things. He says there is coming a day to comfort us. All right, all wrongs will be made right. All wrongs will be made right. And he doesn't tell us when to keep us from growing lethargic or worldly. We are supposed to live as Christ's servants. As if every single day we could hear the trumpet blast and we could be presented before the, this holy Christ. And I, my, my prayer is for myself, for my wife, for my sons, my daughter, my grandchildren, for everyone here. I hope we're all standing on that right side. And all of our sins have been placed on the account of the Savior. And I tremble that anyone would ever have sat under my ministry and to be found in their sins apart from Christ. May, may, may we all live in conscious awareness of this great day. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.